Uh, good morning. Uh, what a pleasure to be able to worship with you this morning and to open up God's Word uh, together. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, that'll be the chapter of the Scripture that we are in together. As Ben said, my name is Michael Kelly, and uh, I'm so glad to be able to uh, to be able to be with you this morning. Uh, my family and I have lived in the Nashville area for about 20 years, uh, but before that, uh, I came from a strange place out west called Texas. Um, I grew up in church at the First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas. And my pastor, when I was a child and all the way through my teenage years, was a man named Brother Jim Hancock. And Brother Jim was uh, one of these preachers who really didn't really didn't get into fourth gear until he was about 30 minutes into his sermon. But nevertheless, without fail, every Sunday morning, when he did get into that fourth gear, uh, his tie would start to be loosened and eventually the top button on his his uh, uh, shirt collar would come undone. And then a few minutes later, you would think he was going to have an aneurysm. And again, without fail, uh, every Sunday morning, uh, he would say, I want everybody in the audience to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to ask you a question. And the question is this. If you were to die tonight, are you absolutely sure that you would go to heaven when you did die? And if the answer was no, Brother Jim would invite you to lift up your hand with every head bow and every eye closed, and then eventually make your way to the front of the church during the invitation time and make a public profession of faith in Christ. This was how I came to know Jesus, under the preaching of Brother Jim Hancock in one of those times when he invited everybody to bow their head and close their eyes when I was eight years old. I walked to the front of the First Baptist Church and made a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's my conversion story. Your conversion story is likely different than that. Your conversion story might be not as an eight-year-old child the way that mine was. It might be that you were in college and you had a roommate that was reading all kinds of books that you had never heard of before. And through a series of conversations, he or she invited you to read this book called Mere Christianity that C.S. Lewis wrote many decades ago. And that's how you first heard the news of the gospel. Or it might have been that you found yourself at the end of a relationship or perhaps in a moment of crisis because of somebody close to you had gotten sick. And for lack of better options at that point, for the first time in your life, you hit your knees and started to pray and you asked the Lord to reveal himself to you if he was indeed real. It might be that you had the experience of someone like Augustine and you were just walking around one day and suddenly come to the thought that your life is empty and you heard a voice say, take and read. And so you were converted mainly by just picking up the Bible and starting to read in the Gospel of John. The way that you came into Christ is wide and varied. There are a myriad of ways in which God draws us to himself. But despite that myriad of ways in which we enter into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, there is really only one way that we can follow Jesus after that. And that is completely. 
This is one of the truths that we find in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, as we come to a text this morning that is probably very familiar to you, and if your Bible is like mine, it appears under a subheading that's called the rich young ruler. So this is what the word of the Lord says in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. It says, just then someone came up and asked him, him being Jesus, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? He said to him, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked him and Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell all your belongings and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, this account is one of those rare occasions in which we don't find a story in the life of Jesus found in only one gospel or only two gospels, but we find this story found in three gospels. And when you bring all of those three gospels together, you get a much more full picture of what's happening in this encounter that Jesus had with who we know to be the rich young ruler. And in that Bringing together, we find, for example, in verse 20, that he is indeed young. Now, young could be any kind of age, under the age of 40 in Jesus' time. So we don't know exactly how young he was, but that he was relatively young. And then in verse 22, we find again that he clearly had many possessions, so he is rich. And then when you look at the Luke account and the Mark account, together with this account in Matthew, you find that he is indeed a ruler. Now, the word ruler here probably means that he is either in leadership over the local synagogue or the local town council of some type. But regardless of what position of leadership he has, he is a person of prominence inside of the community. He's rich. He's young. He has a measure of power inside of the community, and he finds himself asking this question to Jesus. Now, again, it's important that we read this particular account in Matthew with the other ones because when you read them all together, you find a little bit more about the nature of this question that he's asking to Jesus. And when you put it all together, you get another detail. You find that there's an incredible contrast between the crowd and this man. This comes just through reading of the overall context of where Jesus was in his ministry. So remember that Jesus at this point had made a fairly large name for himself as he traveled around and preached. But consider for a minute the kind of people who were likely following Jesus. It seemed everybody in these days had an opinion about who Jesus was and what exactly he was doing here. For some, he was just sort of a curiosity. For some, he was something more than that. But by the nature of his miracles, it's fair to assume that a large number of people who were following Jesus were simply people who had nowhere else to go. They had heard the stories about lepers being healed and about blind people starting to see. They had heard about people standing up when they had been paralyzed for years. They heard about food being multiplied. 
They heard that this was a man who associated with the kinds of people that existed on the fringes of society that nobody else would. And they also heard that in his teaching, he was none too friendly to the religious establishment of the day. So you put all those things together and you come to realize that the crowd following Jesus at that time probably did not look great. It's probably made up of a lot of sick people, a lot of social outcasts. A lot of awkward people, a lot of people that didn't have many friends, powerless people, people that existed in a perpetual state of mourning, people who didn't smell the way that you ought to smell in polite company. These were the kind of people that were there. Now, the reason why that's important is because imagine now the difference between this rich young man and Everybody else that was in the crowd around Jesus, surely he would have stood out. This person of power, this person of prominence, this person who did have his clothes that looked nicely, somebody who was visibly much more wealthy and put together than anybody else who was following Jesus. And then you get one other detail in the corresponding passages, the fact that this young man did not just casually stroll up to Jesus and present his question. He ran. This is what the other gospel writers tell us, that he ran to Jesus and he fell before him. Now, that might make us think of another story that Jesus told this one in Luke chapter 15 about another man who ran. Surely you remember this one as well about the father who had two sons and the younger son took his inheritance from the father and went off to the foreign country and squandered it in all kinds of reckless living. And then eventually when he came home, ready to become just a hired hand in his father's house, the father, as if he had been looking for the son every day since he had left, ran to meet him on the road. It's an important detail there too, because people that were rich or young or old or rulers didn't do that. Running is awkward and you've got to pull up your robes and you might trip and fall down. It's undignified. And yet that's what this man did. He ran to Jesus. This man, this important and well-known community figure, humiliated himself in front of the crowd of the destitute. And he did so because he wanted to ask Jesus a question. Now that helps us to understand the tone of this question and the interaction that Jesus has with this young man. The tone is not haughty, arrogant, and self-assured. It is not, hey Jesus, I've got a good one for you. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And then when Jesus says to keep the commands, the tone that comes back is, well, pretty much got that checked off the list. Is there anything else that you have for me? No. The tone here is one of desperation. It's from a young man who just by visible appearances ought to have everything that the world says is important. And yet despite all of those advantages, all of that privilege, all of the power, all of the money, all of the well-being, he has all of those things, and yet he's found himself at the end of his rope with a question that is burning so hotly inside of his soul 
that he is willing to humiliate himself against people who are beneath him from a social status standpoint just to get a few words out to Jesus. That's the tone of the question. It's not made from a high point. It's made from someone who doesn't have anything left. And he says, teacher, what must I do? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, the question is desperate, but it's also ironic in a way. And Jesus points out the irony because the truth is this young man ought to know the answer. He was Jewish after all. He was a well-learned. He was a position of power. He ought to know what the answer is. And the answer is simple. You want to inherit eternal life? Well, keep the Torah, the law of God. That's what you do to inherit the eternal life that you're looking for. And so when Jesus says this, the man comes back and says, but I've done all that already. Now, of course, you and I know, based on the teachings of Jesus, that he certainly had not done all of that already. At least not in the way that Jesus thinks about keeping the law. He hadn't done all of those things already. But Jesus' answer is unsatisfactory to him because it feels to him like Jesus is telling him to do more of the same. To keep doing the things that have been so unsatisfying and unfulfilling and have left him at the end of his rope. And so then Jesus gives him one other thing to do. In essence, Jesus says, all right, then here's what you need to do. Sell it all. Become poor. And then you can come and follow me. It's a relatively brief interaction that we find here. And yet in the midst of this interaction, we find three distinct reactions to this demanding call of Jesus. And in the midst of those three distinct reactions from three different groups of people who overheard this interaction, we're going to find ourselves because Jesus makes the same call of us today. That regardless of how you entered into a relationship with Jesus, the call continues to go out. That even though you might have come to me in a wide and varied kind of way, there's only one way to follow me from here, and that is completely. So what are these three different reactions that we see to the extreme, all-encompassing, wholehearted call of Jesus to follow him? Well, the first reaction we see is sadness. The rich young ruler was sad. It says he went away grieving. He was sad. And the reason why he was sad was because he had, frankly, a lot of stuff. Now, if you dig behind that a little bit, there might have been any number of reasons that are sort of the reason behind the reason why he was grieving, right? It might have been because the thought of trying to live a life with all these things that made him comfortable made him very sad. Or it might have been because he, frankly, loved all the things that he had and he loved the sort of lifestyle that they had given him. That might make him sad. Or he might have been sad, he might have grieved it, because all of these things that he had had become not just stuff, but had been become sort of the source of all of his personal identity and security. 
They were the things that defined who he was. I mean, for crying out loud, here we are 2,000 years later, and we don't even know his name. We still define him by his stuff. He's the rich young ruler still to us. So the thought of giving all those things away meant not just that he would be poor in terms of his financial assets. It meant that he would be poor in terms of his self-identification and his source of security. Maybe that's the reason why it made him sad. It could have been all of those things. Whatever the reason was, this was his first reaction to be sad. Now, it's important for us today when we hear the call of Jesus to abandon all and follow him, that we not make the mistake, which we might, of looking at the command that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler as a comprehensive and specific command for everyone who follows him. This is what, for example, the Franciscan monks have traditionally done. They took these words so literally that they developed a lifestyle in which they wouldn't even have physical contact with money. But Jesus is not once for all time saying to all who want to follow him, if you want to follow me, then you need to sell off every asset that you have. No, that's not what he's doing. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is finding the particular component of this man's life that was keeping him from fully trusting in and completely abandoning himself to the care and the lordship of Jesus Christ. This command came from Jesus' ability to look into this man's soul and to find what it was that was keeping him from following Jesus. There's an account in Matthew chapter 4 that you might remember as well. This was at the first of Jesus' ministry where Jesus is calling his first disciples. You remember this, where Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee and he sees two brothers named Peter and Andrew and they're casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Jesus says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, the Bible tells us that at once, Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed him. Now, perhaps the Bible is just being very specific there in saying that they left their nets and followed him. And the reason that that detail is left in that particular account is because they happened to be holding nets and wanted to tell us what happened. And so they dropped their nets and followed him. Or perhaps there's something else there, too. And maybe the something else comes from realizing that in that day and time, the reason that you were a fisherman is not because you dreamt of being a fisherman as a little boy and because you pursued a degree in fishing and then you did an internship in the fishing industry so that you could finally become a fisherman on your own. In a society where upward mobility was really not a thing, the reason you were a fisherman was because your dad was a fisherman. And he was a fisherman because his dad was a fisherman. A fisherman was who you were. And it's not only who you were, it's the means by which you provided for your family. And not only that, it's also the means by which you were known and contributed to the overall stability and well-being of the community in which you found yourself. So in light of that context, imagine what it took for Peter and Andrew to be holding on, to be holding on to this thing, this implement the thing that was the source of their livelihood, 
their family security, their personal identification, their very identity, the thing that had marked their family for generations, to drop it and to follow Jesus. It's the same thing that Jesus is calling the rich young ruler to do. Except it's not a net in his case. It's his stuff. When Jesus says to come and follow him, and he says to sell everything that you have to the rich young ruler, he's saying you need to abandon the source of your identity. You need to abandon your personal security. You need to abandon everything else that you're trusting in, the places that you're finding joy and importance. You need to drop all of those things like the nets of Peter and follow me. And when Jesus issues that command, we feel that sadness. Because for us too, it means abandoning the things in which we find our own security, our identity, our self-worth, our comfort. We feel that sadness. And as a result, many of us, when we hear the call of Jesus to drop your nets or to sell off your stuff or whatever it is and follow him, that the tendency for us in the midst of our grief of losing those things is to try and live a life in which we have it both ways. Where we try to pick up the cross with one hand and hold on to the nets with the other hand. And what ends up happening when we do that is that we live a segmented kind of life in which there are certain portions of our lives that are devoted to very religious kinds of things. But then again, there are other parts of our lives in which we really don't pay any attention to the Lordship of Jesus. We have our church life and we have our work life. We have our church life and we have our hobby life. We have all of those things and they're separated one from the other instead of releasing everything and following Jesus wholeheartedly, completely, holistically. That's the first reaction that we see in this passage is the reaction of sadness. It's of grief. The second reaction that we see in this react in, in Jesus called a complete surrender is that of astonishment. Let's keep reading in verse 23. After the young man is sad, we see that Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So the disciples overhearing this conversation and overhearing Jesus demand his command What he says to the rich young ruler, they're not sad like the rich young ruler is. They are surprised, shocked, astonished that Jesus would make this demand of someone. And the reason why they are so astonished is because they felt like they understood what it meant to be blessed by God. And yet Jesus was telling this man to sell off the very things that they considered to be blessings from God. The way that you could tell in this day and time if a person was blessed by God was pretty clear. It's that they were very wealthy, that they were healthy, their children were 
well-behaved and in order. They had received a claim from the people around him. You would look at a person like that and say, well, this person is blessed by God. And into this vision of blessing, Jesus drops the hand grenade of the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are those of you who hunger and thirst. And blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who don't have all of these things. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. The disciples still living in that old paradigm, not fully embracing the upside down nature, the kingdom of God. In which the mourners are comforted, in which the hungry are filled, in which all of those things happen in exact opposite ways that the world would tell us, having not embraced that. They are astonished that Jesus would make this command. And isn't there still just a little bit of us too that is astonished when seemingly bad things happen in our lives? Now we have read the books and heard the sermons and do all those things and yet still isn't there part of us when we're faced with the sickness or with the difficult relationship or with the layoff at work or whatever it is, isn't there part of us that is still surprised that the Lord would do this to us? That this blessing that we had in our lives appears to be going away. There's still a level of astonishment. Now, in this passage, to double down on it, This wasn't even something that was happening to the rich young ruler. Jesus was telling him to take the voluntary action of loss. His poverty was not going to be circumstantial. It was going to be by choice. To get rid of that which might typically be considered the blessings of God. No wonder the disciples were surprised. And if you feel a little bit of that astonishment this morning... There's a small detail dripped into Mark's account of the rich young ruler that helps us here. In that account, the Bible says, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Now notice the order here because it's important. The order is this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then step two was Jesus gave him a command. So what that means is that that command, as astonishing as it was to the disciples and as astonishing as it still might be to us, that command was made from the love of Jesus. That the reason why he gave him that command was not because he was trying to be mean or trying to be tyrannical or trying to be cruel or trying to get that guy to validate his own commitment to him, the reason why he made that dramatic command was because he loved the rich young ruler. When Jesus gives us one more thing to be done, it's not just because he wants one more thing done. It's because he loves you. And in his love, Jesus refuses to allow you To put your joy and your hope and your satisfaction and your source of identity and your emotional aptitude. He refuses to allow you to hang those things on something that is far too weak 
to hold them. There's only one thing in the universe that is strong enough to sustain the weight of your joy, of your hope, of your expectations, of your dreams. And that is the son of God. When Jesus tells this man to sell it all, he is telling him. To pin all of your hopes and dreams and joy on something better. If you're feeling astonished at the demands of Jesus today, consider that those demands are not just demands. They are an invitation. They're an invitation to something more and better, given that he loves you. So the first reaction is one of sadness. The second reaction is one of astonishment. The third reaction that we see in this passage is one of entitlement. That's what we get from Peter in the next verses. So the disciples are surprised. And then Peter responds in verse 27 and says, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter's reaction is one of entitlement. It is a classic, what about me kind of move that Peter hears. We've done all of this already, Peter says. And surely there's that reaction in us at some point as well, right? When you look around and feel like that everyone is being promoted ahead of you, that everyone is growing ahead of you, that everyone is receiving more acclaim than you are. Isn't there a sense at times when you just think to yourself, hey, what, what about me? Like, I'm, I'm doing my best over here. It would be helpful for us to remember that the thing that we are entitled to, regardless of what Peter thinks or regardless of what builds up in our souls at some point, the thing that we are entitled to is judgment. That's what we are entitled to. And Jesus might have reminded Peter of that fact. He might have. He said, buddy, before you get on your high horse here, let me just remind you about the nature of sin and what's happening here in just a short period of time. But he didn't. Instead, Jesus points Peter and us to an amazing truth. And that truth is this. That yes, following Jesus will cost you everything. But in the end, it will bring you more. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus was calling the rich young ruler to lose his possessions. But that call to loss was only a stopgap to something greater. In other words, the loss was not an end in itself. It was the pathway to true gain. You might remember in our second Bible reading from Luke chapter 9 today, that Jesus says, you got to take up your cross and follow me. For whoever loses his life will save it. Jesus is not saying in that passage, I want you to lose your life. He is saying, I want you to find your life. I want you to save your life. I don't want you to waste your life. But understand that the pathway to the end of gain and joy and loss and being saved is walked through the valley of loss. That's the way that you get there. But don't mistake. Selling everything 
dropping your nets, taking up the cross, this is not an end in itself. Following Jesus will cost you everything. But it will bring you more. Peter felt entitled. The disciples were amazed. And to our knowledge, the story ends with this rich young ruler going away very sad. Our imaginations, he walks despondently back to his big house. And he sat in the middle of all of his big stuff. Surrounded by all the creature comforts that once made him feel so safe, so secure, so stable, but over the course of time had lost their luster in the face of what he was lacking. But I wonder as we close here today, if you could just imagine. Imagine. What if later that night he changed his mind? What if there he was in the midst of all of his big stuff? In front of all of his technology, in the midst of all the things that made him feel comfortable, he looked around and they became like bile in his throat. And he suddenly started to see them the way that Jesus saw them, as impediments to true joy and true satisfaction. And what if in a flurry he screwed up all of his resolve and he went through his home and he started one by one pulling all of his possessions out onto his front walk right there in the middle of the community. And then he started labeling them with prices. And then when everybody started gathering around, he heard him yell, it's a garage sale. It's a garage sale. Everything must go. It's price to sell. Come and take what you want. The people came, they were confused at first, but then they started taking their stuff. And with every sale, every piece of furniture, every strip of clothing, with everything that happened, the young man's countenance brightened. The piles of his stuff got lower and lower. They got thinner and thinner until after a solid day of peddling his treasures, he only had one set of meager clothes and a pile of cash. And he gave that away too. And suddenly he found himself unencumbered by the weight of everything he had accumulated over the years. And then he started to run again. But this time he ran faster because he had to catch up to Jesus. And can you imagine that next meeting? It would have been much different than the day before. I suspect there would have been a lightness to it, a winsomeness to it that was absent from the desperation that he previously had with him. Because now the young man was ready to start following Jesus with open hands, waiting for Jesus to fill them with something better. And so the invitation comes to us again this morning. Following Jesus will cost you everything but it will bring you more. Let's pray that we would have the courage and the faith to once again take up our crosses and follow him. Lord, this is what we ask of you by your grace, that you would help us to embrace the cost that comes from following your son, Jesus. We pray that even as we do that, that you would give us faith to believe the truth of what you said. 
that there is more. That yes, we walk through the path of loss, but we end in gain. And we pray that we would do it tomorrow as well. May it be so.